0: And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe. We're landed now on planet Napa. We're on location with the one and only Father Spitzer, where we actually get to do the program in person, and we get to do it in front of a, a crowd of people here from the Napa
1: Convention. And it's really exciting, as always, to be with your father, especially in person. Great to be with you, too, Doug, and uh, uh, truly uh, in person is much better.
0: Absolutely. We're in the same quadrant for the first time. <laughs> yeah. right? Usually I'm gatekeeping back in Irondale.
1: That's right. That's from right. the mothership. As That's we right. Call them, uh, uh, indeed. And I'm out in the Peripheries of Orange County.
0: That's right. <laughs> but the peripheries is an important place to be. Apparently, in the church these days. So <laughs> yeah. So you're 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 well placed. <laughs> and of course, we have this here for for our, our people attending the conference. We're going to feature mostly questions that came from people that, that gave gave us, and we'll talk about those. But first, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, in a sense, of the conference itself, because you you have a, a an actually an official position here, right?
1: Well, yeah, I'm the actual um, uh, president of the Napa Institute, and. Um, I'm the MC of the conference, it has been my 13th conference uh, uh, to be the Master of Ceremonies. And I also give a variety of talks, a keynote, a couple of breakouts, and uh, try to, uh, uh, you know, uh, accommodate the conference in many other ways, uh, just uh, by my presence. So, uh, yeah, I've been uh, truly, uh, NAPA has been integrated with my whole objectives. As well. well, let me ask you, the, the, the theme was what we need now.
0: Uh, How did that come about, and what was the thinking behind that, and what's different about now?
1: Well, I mean, in a a word, woke ideology is one of the big nows that are confusing. Uh, A second area is uh, seemingly very large, rift-like disagreements between some uh, groups within our church um, and trying to get through that confusion. Um, and uh, third area is we see the identity politics off of the woke, but it is really making for divisions within our culture, mm-hmm. and that's a real um, uh, you know confusion to get through. And so we just thought, okay, let's take all the, you know, all of it's kind of piled in. It's all interrelated to each other. How can we advise uh, these good leaders who are coming to the conference? These good people who. Uh, really have an influence within their communities and their dioceses. How can we uh, influence them uh, so that, uh, or give them enough uh, of the materials uh, to help them, along with uh, you know intellectual conversion, spiritual conversion, and moral conversion, to deepen right. that experience in their in their already deepened faith lives. It struck me that one of the one of the important points that you wanted to get
0: across, and I knew yourself got across in some statements you made is the idea if you understand the history of the church it's easier to understand to some degree how we deal with what we're
1: dealing with now right that's right and uh, one of the things to, to note is you know you can always trust the holy spirit you can always trust the lord uh, as he acts through the church the church has been through very confusing, even heterodox, internally divided times Mm -hmm. in its past. And some of those um, eras in the past, much worse than they are today. Uh, So you look at that and you go, you know, just when you thought it's all over for that Catholic church, then suddenly, voom. Uh, Unbeknownst to anybody, Mm -hmm. there's all these saints that are kind of, uh, you know, rising up. There's all of these uh, instances where we can see, um, you know, that God obviously is having a hand in this and everything's coming together, it's Mm -hmm. catalyzing, it's synthesizing, and suddenly the church not only gets out of all of its problems, it winds up being ahead of where it was before the problems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this can only happen uh, with some sort of divine or providential agency. In fact, um, uh, you know, Arnold Toynbee, who was very much a secular historian for a long, long time, uh, finally became a Christian, and um, the reason is, he said, you know, I look at this Catholic church, and um, of all the institutions uh, in in the world, by far, there's none like it in terms of not just its survivability, Mm -hmm. but the way it survives, the way it grows, the way that it handles crises. There's no secular institution like it. Uh, No secular institution has even come close to living, uh, you know, the same kind of um, uh, uh, sort of... Uh, you know, organizational history that the church has and he said it just really reveals how important uh, the magisterium is, how important grace is and this is coming from a person who is truly uh, a secular historian of the first order and um, he he recognized the church is just different and caused his conversion. All right. Well, let's get to
0: a couple of questions uh, sure. to get started, especially one that actually came up from a couple of people here. And I think it's uh, probably based on a lot of what's been in the news lately about UFOs. Oh, yeah. Where a person writes, uh, do you believe that there are extraterrestrials uh, living things with or without uh, rationality? And do you basically believe aliens exist? As, should we be inviting E.T. to mass? <laughs> okay,
1: uh, those are three very good questions. Right. I mean... Uh, <laughs> the last one was mine. Yeah. I don't want to blame that poor person on that. That's all so. good. That was mine. <laughs> I might have thought <laughs> it. But anyway, <clears throat> with respect to the first question, yeah. are there, um, is there alien life forms that are out there that are non-rational? And I would have to say that I, I think there probably uh, is something along those lines mm-hmm. out there. Uh, and the reason I do is because um, our universe has inbuilt into its uh, laws and properties, not just the laws of physics and chemistry, but also the laws of biology. So it's there from the the very beginning. Now the laws of biology don't click in Mm -hmm. until somewhere uh, way down the pike, right? So about eight billion Years after the the Big Bang, we start seeing uh, that planetary systems capable of supporting life are coming round. Well, now the universe is 13.8 billion years old, so you know life's been around for about five billion, between five billion to two billion years mm-hmm. has been uh, you know originating, and so you can see that. Uh, uh, well, uh, if it happened on this Earth, and let's say there you know uh, 10 to the uh, Um, 11th, at the very minimum, a hundred billion exoplanets like ours, right in the right range from a a, a star, which is like ours and so forth. Uh, And if you have a hundred billion planets, and it may be as high as 10 to the 20th, Mm -hmm. right? So that's like, you know, uh, what is it, a um, hundred million um, uh, uh, trillion um, uh, uh, exoplanets and you have all of the laws of biology built in from the very inception of the universe, uh, including uh, you know, uh, um, those that would be necessary for the independent schemes of recurrence, I'd have to say, yeah, mm-hmm. there's gonna be life forms out there. Uh, they may not be uh, you know, exactly like ours, but uh, two things uh, for sure. Uh, they will be carbon-based life forms. Uh, and those carbon-based life forms, uh, they will have some form of metabol- metabolic system that will be based on some forms of amino acids and proteins uh, similar to the syntheses of those proteins that constitute our own cells. So that part I, I really do think uh, is, is probable uh, that it's going to be there. Uh, The second uh, question about uh, intelligent alien
0: life. Right, because really they're looking at the idea that they have proof that we've been visited so to speak.
1: Yeah, if there is intelligent alien life, well let's just uh, before, uh, I'm just going to say... You know what
0: the joke is, if they were that intelligent they wouldn't bother with us, which is...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, here's the thing is, if they could do actual, uh, not just interstellar, but intergalactic uh, travel, because you're going to have to travel from one outer point of the galaxy to another Outer point uh, of, of uh, you know this Milky Way galaxy, uh, right? If you're going to get um, exoplanets, you, you, you're not going to get them near the black hole in the middle of the galaxy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, those poor planets. Yeah, they're gonna be hot, they're gonna be squished, it's gonna be bad. So you're not gonna get any exoplanets out there. So you're gonna to have to go to the periphery of the galaxy and that's the long way around. So let's suppose they got here from this Earth from some distant star that are, uh, you know, let's say a million uh, or more light years from here. Right. I and mean, if they got here, a million light years from here, uh, then all I can tell you is they have got enough power to instantly destroy us. Right. And if they had the power to instantly destroy us and they haven't done it, they're really, let's suppose these UFO sightings are real, right. then uh, you know they haven't done it. They have to have some kind of a humane instinct. Right, They can't be out just simply to annihilate or to dominate or to enslave, Uh, they they seem to be laying off of us. There has to be some kind of a humane instinct. I I would call it conscience. I would call it empathy, just like we have conscience and empathy, which brings me to the point of, well, where do you get conscience and empathy from? Not physical processes, not biological, environmental uh, processes that can be determined by an evolutionary Evolution's basically a physical biological process. So that's not gonna happen, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because those kinds of activities require, truly require a soul. Uh, We've got five of those activities, um, you know, that require a soul, Uh, one of them is Uh, what we call cognitive activities or you have conceptual ideas Mm -hmm. that give rise to what we call hierarchical, syntactically significant Mm -hmm. language. We cannot train any chimpanzee to have syntactically significant language uh, and conceptual and abstract ideas. Uh, You're going to beat up on Nim Chimpsky? Yeah, I'm going to beat up on Nim Chimpsky (laughs) because poor old Nim Chimpsky (laughs) did learn 120 words in American Sign Language, but they were all what we call perceptual ideas. They correspond to a nominative, uh, uh, you know, to like a a subject in a Mm -hmm. sentence, uh, to an individual thing, a banana, uh, a dog, uh, whatever that that can be phrased in a perceptual way. They don't have ideas. And the the proof of it is that a chimpanzee learning all those words uh, cannot distinguish between Dog bites man, and man right. bites dog. Now, a little kid who is a year and a half old may be laughing about this, but the chimp doesn't get it. No matter how hard you train him, Noam Chomsky, you know, after whom N. Chomsky is named, right. uh, Noam Chomsky basically said at this point, he said, "Look." He says, there, there's just no way they think like us. And that's why Robert Berwick and Noam Chomsky wrote another book right. called Why Only Us. Right. We're the only ones who have you've them.
0: featured in some of your books. Yeah, that's right, that that's material. right. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, though. I mean, we're dealing to some degree with this as a possibility. And then you've got, we, you know, the explanations about where we came from. And in the 70s, there was the Von Doniken, you know, <laughs> chariots of, of fire, uh, you know. Char- you know. Chariots of the God, not chariots of fire, chariots (laughs) of the God, and the idea like, well, that's really where Adam, we really are, we're planted here by extraterrestrials.
1: Well, no, we're really not. Okay. I I, uh, I mean, the basic evidence is that 65,000 years ago, something happened and it didn't happen like plunk a whole bunch of, uh, you know, people got plunked. It happened probably in one, a person or one couple in our species, gave rise mm-hmm. to a whole new uh, grouping. And I would call that and sold Adam and Eve. And uh, I believe that um, uh, at that time, that's the first time God gave a soul uh, to um, uh, a human being, I think all of our pre-hominid uh, ancestors, our our previous uh, and all of our hominid ancestors, all of them uh, did not have a soul. Basically, for 130,000 years, um, our genetic ancestors, from Y chromosome Adam and uh, mitochondrial Eve, they were sitting on the border of Namibia and Angola, cracking coconuts, eating bananas, and having a good old time. But they were doing nothing and going nowhere, Mm -hmm. and then suddenly, suddenly, 65 to 60,000 years ago, they're, you know, they've invented mathematics, they've got complex counting sticks that can actually do, uh, you know, complex multiplicative operations. They suddenly have conceptual language and are expressing a conceptual language in all kinds of ways of communicating that's leading to huge new realms of technology, not just like uh, creating fish hooks, but boating technologies and geographical navigation technologies and all kinds of weaponry and fire making technologies Everything else, all the sun you can imagine. Suddenly, the same group of people get religion, right? And and all of a sudden, they 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 have artifacts that they're that they're giving, you know, putting in grave goods uh, right. with uh, their deceased uh, uh, people in, in in their burial sites. Well, why are you giving them grave goods? They think there's a life there's after death, after and they by. they need a little help. They need some fire back there. They, yeah, because I a- think
0: one time you said with the Neander- Neanderthals, they would bury, but there were no.
1: There were Implements never any like, grave goods. No, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and the angel they'll never had grave goods uh, with it. And of course, certainly not grave goods that w- had little. Uh, you know, these little idols. You know, fertility goddesses or lion. Uh, uh, you know, men, yeah. uh, go- uh, gods and so forth and Something so on. Something that would help them in the that, next that's world. That's right, and protect kind of a, them and, right. and so forth in another world. So religion comes about. Mathematics comes about conceptual language comes about, and geographical exploration. So for 130,000 years, you're doing nothing but cracking coconuts. Then the next thing. They come zooming up to the northern frontiers of Africa, cross over the Straits, going into Europe, going into Asia, crossing over, to, uh, you know, the, the ocean uh, to get to Indonesia. This is all happening like a boom, boom, boom. Right. And then, of course, they go right up to the northern frontiers of Europe, cross the Arctic land bridge, go over into North America, and then zoom all the way down uh, to, the, uh, to the southernmost tip of, uh, of South America. And they did all this in 17,000 years and for 130,000 years they didn't budge Mm -hmm. from Namibia and Angola on the Atlantic coast? Something very strange going on here. In other words, (laughs) this is a totally different Species. It's a very intelligent. It's Homo symbolicus, Homo, you know, uh, linguisticus, Homo mathematicus, Homo religiosus, Homo, uh, you know, uh, symbolicus, and 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 uh, uh, you know Homo. By the way, uh, Homo aestheticus too, because they're creating musical flutes. Right. There's nothing like that. Uh, they're they're cr- uh, you know uh, obviously they're uh, creating drums of some sort. Of they have a sense of, of rhythm. They're they're decorating but that jewelry. that couldn't all from kinds
0: outside. This Planet or outside this solar system?
1: Well, it, if it did, it, it should have come in in a much more rigorous way. I see. Okay. But what we see is that it comes from a single couple and then it kind of develops and it grows as it's, on it's going own. along. Rather okay. yeah, than so, just
0: instantaneously, there's yeah. the new technologies there and everybody's up to yeah. speed. Yeah, that's well, right. You were talking about Europe and you were talking about uh, the idea of people. Uh, transversing into Europe. And and one of the questions one of the people had here was talking about uh, some of the talk in in the church and the whole idea of the importance of beauty was brought up. And why that's an important aspect of our faith. And they said, if beauty is powerful, why are the churches in Europe empty?
1: Well, there are lots of beautiful churches. Uh, The problem is threefold in Europe, if you ask me. Um, There are people, we have French partners uh, at the Magis Institute, for example, uh, that really do publish uh, good scientific stuff like we're doing at the Magis Center for high schools and, and, you know, publication books. And, in fact, we're trying to get uh, some of uh, my books uh, translated into French um, uh, by them. Uh, But uh, you do have, uh, and in Germany, uh, we have similar things uh, going on. The difficulty, though, is the majority of the culture has simply not looked seriously at the faith science question. Um, you know, we have so much going on in the United States. We've got the Board of Lincoln and Guth proof, right? Oh, by the way, that's going on in England too. So we've got some of it in England and the United States. For some reason in Germany and France, uh, you know, it's just, it's just not happening on the same level. Yes, the religious scientists are reporting it, but um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the the scientists who are just you know doing their scientific things are not reporting these things. So you really have a faith science rift uh, in in um, uh, in Europe. But I think that's going to solve itself as the evidence begins to manifest mm-hmm. itself. Uh, as we've seen right now, Stephen Hawking has reversed himself on a variety of points and you know c- kind of became a <clears throat> at least a believer in theism at the end. We see it with uh, uh, several other people right. um, that are uh, really clearly I mean, even uh, you know, Richard Dawkins, a uh, formidable atheist, uh, atheist at one time, suddenly declares right. himself. Uh, to be, uh, in fact, one of your latest books
0: kind of deals a lot with this whole idea uh, uh, of breaking down that barrier between yeah, the secular
1: kind of scienti- scientism really and why that doesn't work. Yeah, And and if, if people really know their science, right. they're going to see this. And that's why 66% of young scientists today uh, in the United States right. declare themselves to be uh, believers in God or a higher transcendent power. But that's just one problem. The second problem is uh, Europe has lost its moral compass. Mm -hmm. Uh, They took the autonomy uh, revolution and the sexual revolution like uh, five more steps uh, than many in the United States. United States maintained a moral compass in certain Areas mm-hmm. where uh, religion was strong, there wasn't this just uh, you know complete uh, abandonment. Now, our, our, some of our younger people today, especially among the millennials, uh, they are abandoning God uh, uh, and abandoning uh, the idea of the moral compass and moral uh, moral uh, values much more rapidly. Uh, but that is, I think, we can obviate some of those problems. Well, why do you, why, why do you think that's
0: happening? I mean, some would look looking. Europe and say with France, you've kind of, they never quite recovered from their revolution, okay, in some ways, yeah. and, and then you've got kind of the lost generation after World War I, where really Europe was destroyed in World War I, yeah. and, the, and they never kind of rebounded faith-wise, and then obviously yeah. compounding with World War II.
1: Yeah, I think there was a despair that came into uh, uh, Europe. It was a kind of a, a, a trifecta because, you know, first of all, they, they have World War I, wipes out half the male population, Then they have the Spanish flu, wipes out a whole bunch of others, including the next generation of people. And then, you know, after a while, you know, there's this just despair walking around. If it hadn't been for the miracle of Fatima, what good news would there have been, uh, you know, if you could say that in Europe uh, for 20 full years? Uh, And of course... Would this lead to World War II? It absolutely did, and that compounded the problem uh, even further. I think that the people who led the Nazi regime had already despaired of any kind of a transcendent or moral compass. They were basically reading Hegel and Nietzsche right. and trying to a semi occultists Yeah, a semi occultist exactly. And so, you, you basically, you know, it's it's much more difficult for them. Uh, to, to to regain the world compass, right. America was spared. I mean, yes, right. Pearl Harbor was bombed, but far the from mainland the... was exactly. exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, some person wants to know where
0: is heaven? Now, some people would say it's right here in Napa, uh, <laughs> looking around. But uh, I think they were looking for the a little more eternal side. Uh, uh, yeah. Your well, thoughts. you know,
1: the idea of a where uh, means a spatio-temporal continuum, uh, like we would have in. Uh, in our universe here, mm-hmm. so the the idea, uh, you know, that you can uh, answer the question where would require that there's somewhere. So there's a here and a there and a and an up and a down and a, <clears throat> a north and a south and so forth. So you have to have what's called relative uh, spatiotemporal positioning. Where is heaven? Well, um, to put it uh, mildly uh, and bluntly, mm-hmm. it's in the mind of God. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if God wants to have a conception of a beautiful uh, domain in which um, the blessed and, um, you know, and he meet up with uh, one another, <clears throat> a domain of, of real uh, perfection and uh, egoless love, <clears throat> he could have that right in his mind. But it's not connected to anywhere in our universe. So you're not going to look up <clears throat> and get to a completely separate thought mm-hmm in the infinite or unrestricted divine mind of God.
0: Okay, okay. Here's another question, and this is one from uh, one of the people attending here. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing, uh, as good Catholics and concerned about the poor and helping those with less, they say, is enjoying good food partaking in, in goodness, truth, and beauty? Is it okay, basically? Yeah. Is it okay to do that? Yeah, absolutely. And God. Should I feel guilty about doing that? Well, I,
1: I don't think I'm adding you, some words. <laughs> you don't want you don't want to uh, feel guilty about enjoying uh, something that that God has has certainly provided us with. Let's face facts. You know, um, there's wine in the, the the poorest of places too. I mean, it's not the wine we might be drinking here, but uh, uh, clearly it, there is. Um, uh, God has created a, a world to be lived in and enjoyed. And so um, you see that theme, uh, not only writ large right. in Genesis, but uh, in a variety of different scriptures. And, he, you know, he's a benevolent God. He he, he he wanted there to be beauty. He wanted, uh, you know, people to uh, be able to enjoy life. Now, um, uh, you know, you can't stop there. That's where the, you know, what Christianity says. Uh, so if you really have this, you uh, Um, You know, you don't want to become a a hedonist. You want to move beyond to what uh, I call Level 3 and Level 4. You you want to start taking the resources you have or the insights you pick up at the Napa Institute. Right. Variety of other places. And you want to use them, invest them in your community. Right. You want to share them with your children. You want to make an investment, perhaps. uh, You know, there's many, many organizations who are here who want to bring the word of God uh, to to people. Many of them also, uh, you know, cross Catholic outreach, uh, you know, really do want to work Uh, with the poor around the world and are really making a a difference to do that. Catholic charities, et cetera. So um, it's the way we use our resources to make a contribution, the way we use our resources to try and contribute to the building of the kingdom as well, to restoring a moral compass within our culture. And they're really, you know, right here uh, uh, now in Napa, there's about 30 organizations that are trying to do all of these things one way or another, and they're asking um, you know some of uh, the benefactors who are here to uh, uh, to help contribute help. Uh, to those efforts
0: right because we live in a temporal world So it does that's right those kind of you talked about happiness now Arthur Brooks talked about Happiness mm-hmm. and some of the other talks here and there talked about faith and what's going on with people if not happiness They talked about dealing with young people especially in despair well, Yeah, why is happiness such an important as is it? Is it a bigger issue for people today than it used to be, even when we were growing up? Oh,
1: absolutely! Uh, right now, uh, we have had such a huge uh, climb in the suicide rate uh, uh, rates of young people. Uh, it's it's utterly disturbing. And in the suicide rates of young ladies, it has grown uh, over a hundred percent over the last 14 years. Now, some of that was COVID-oriented, uh, but they uh, you know there was a layering of a 63% increase in suicide rates uh, with young ladies and uh, about a 40% increase in suicide rates among young men prior to COVID. COVID of course exacerbated it, but now it continues, Mm -hmm. right? And so the increase, the acceleration continues unabated. So, I mean, what what we're left with is a lot of people wondering, what our youth, are in despair, Mm -hmm. yet they seem to have more than they ever have before. Certainly, with all the technologies, ah, now there is the rub. So we begin to see three things have happened to this younger generation that you and I, we really didn't have to contend with. Mm -hmm. The first thing is a steep drop in religious belief Uh, You know, the faith in science is a huge reason for that. Problem of suffering is a huge reason for that. And just plain hedonistic apathy is a reason for that. But whatever the case is, the steep drop in religious belief can be correlated with very good psychiatric data from the American Psychiatric Association that non-religiously affiliated people have doubling and tripling of um, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, suicidal ideation, suicides, uh, antisocial aggressivity, et cetera, explaining one of the major factors for why the suicide, depression, anxiety and homicide rates of young people are skyrocketing. So that's one factor. But there's a second factor. Ego comparative identity has also increased, you know, um, shockingly um, during this time. Who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more power? Okay. Less power? More intelligence? Less intelligence? Uh, so there's this constant comparison game going right. on with young people that got exacerbated because of in Instagram, social media, where they're constantly comparing uh, themselves to the others. World of selfies. I mean, The world of selfies and uh, what Arthur Brooks uh, today right. called oh, the, the, the the me. Right. Um, uh, you know, a part of you know the the uh, there's the I part and there's the me part that's looking at itself and of course there's all of that looking at itself which we didn't really do we didn't have the Instagram we didn't have the uh, you know right. the uh, social media the Facebook etc so um, you know, put these right. things together and it's perfectly explicable yeah. we there's only one way out right. we have to get religion mm-hmm. restored and when religion gets restored ego comparative identity becomes less significant so you get a twofer. you get you know you can uh, kill two birds with one stone by restoring religion because religion will restore the moral compass that's another reason for the despair and it will decrease ego comparative identity which is a reason for not only the despair but also the lack of moral compass so religion is the key and that um, is, uh, you know, at the end, Arthur Brooks uh, basically said, you know, uh, the awe that we feel, the love that's intrinsic, uh, you know, to religious belief, uh, that is going to be a huge uh, part of the formula. And I believe it is the, it's not just a part of the formula. Right. It's, the, it's the formula.
0: Well, I remember uh, when we, yeah. we were growing up in the 60s and the 70s, there used to be this uh, this poem or whatever it was called Desiderata it was very popular yeah, yeah. with the, kind of yeah. young people and stuff playing the guitars. Yeah. But it had <laughs> narr- in there, one great line was always, don't compare yourself to others, there'll always be some lesser and some greater. Yeah, And that's, you know, and that idea, as soon as you start comparing yourself to other people, like he said, in that that idea. That's when you're always going to come up short.
1: Sometimes you'll be better and sometimes you'll be less. And even if you are better, it's still bad for you right? because you're either puffed up with pride or you're blaming everybody. Well, you're setting
0: yourself up for the next person who's better than you. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. exactly. So we also have some questions uh, from prior programs we didn't get to. Okay. So I want to make sure it wasn't necessarily one that came from people here. Oh, sure. Especially this question. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, I need help to know how to handle my nephew deciding to present himself as a woman. My husband and I do not attend the wedding as we couldn't bring ourselves to celebrate something we believe to be false and invalid how do we maintain a good relationship with my husband's family all of who were joyful over the union question mark my biggest concern is salvation of souls since most of the family has left the faith and his lady's name was Betty
1: well Betty I mean the first thing is is uh, I, I would say maintain communication uh, but don't try to compromise your own beliefs in order to maintain that uh, communication. In other words, the, the, the clear line of division is, is not to compromise who you are. If you really do believe that, you know, um, uh, sexual reassignment surgery is against God's will, or if you really do believe that, uh, uh, you know, a same-sex marriage is, is really a violation of God's covenant uh, and, and, and His intention and will, Whatever you do, don't, you know, say, well, I guess, you know, uh, in some circumstances it could be okay. Or, you know, it doesn't matter that much to me. If it matters that much to you, it matters to me. And, of course, the the reason it does is because it's so harmful. And, and again, we know that we get these staggering increases Mm. in suicides for people who've had a uh, um, uh, right. sexual reassignment surgery. It sounds like this poor
0: and we and we've talked many times on the program about how the uh, how Europe has kind of woken up to it a lot faster than what's gone on.
1: Absolutely, is again surprisingly so. Absolutely, and and like uh, like there's already seven countries that have just abandoned right. in Europe. Uh, because the risks are so much greater than the actual benefits uh, that that would have accrued to anything. Uh, Why the United States is holding out so adamantly, in fact, putting their foot on the accelerator, when again and again we see those staggering suicide statistics, a 20 times increase from 0.6 to 32 percent, uh, suicides in a population. Are you kidding me? This is terrible. Of course, the Europeans look at that and go, this is terrible. We should stop doing this. But I guess in the United States, all things come, the uh, harmful come to a halt when lawsuits get involved. Right. And so also,
0: if, we live in a, in a world, uh, Mother Angelica, I think, used to use the frame false compassion. Exactly. Uh, this idea of uh, the overemphasis to some degree on empathy. Not that one does not want to be empathetic, but to the point of letting people do things that are not good for them because you don't want them to, quote unquote, feel bad.
1: That's right. Or right. D- uh, allowing it in the culture because you don't want them to feel bad. But one has to remember, you know, I, I remember one, I was having a debate with a guy over assisted suicide once. And uh, he, he says to me, look, he says that this is if I want to commit suicide, uh, you know, that's my business. And y- you, you know, you're a Catholic religious person. You have nothing to say about that. I said, oh, yeah? Well, let's say say that you want to commit suicide, but you just don't want to commit suicide. You want to change the law so that suicide will be uh, legal uh, throughout the entire establishment. Now, look at what you're doing when you do something like that. You're having these profound effects everywhere, right? The minute you start legislating, won't you put it into the public square? The moment you start doing these things, all of a sudden you create a whole new victim class. All these people who don't want uh, to be, uh, you know, put away, as it were, they don't want to be pressured to suicide. Suddenly they are are pressured that that never existed before. We tried to bring that uh, uh, to the law. I remember one time, uh, you know, one of my debate partners actually shoved a gun. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, a, a motion like a gun. You know, mm. he didn't have a gun, but you know, push it and he says, "Here, yeah, you know, here's you want to commit suicide so badly, you know, here's a gun, you know." Uh, and he says, hey, "You can do it, but don't tell us that we have to permit this in the culture, permit it in our legislatures, permit it within our policy We are not going to." Create another victim class of people who are going to get pressured to commit suicide. We don't want to commit. Right. Uh, uh, do you think that there's uh, young people out there who are already pressured to do the sex change, Absolutely. simply because it's they have gender? It's confusion? The same thing. Absolutely. Right. We're creating another victim class, no doubt about that, and that's got to stop. Because now look at all the detransitioners. Yeah. But like I said. You know, until the lawsuits come, and they will come right. because the detransitioners are going through the ceiling and relatives are now very concerned about the suicide rate. You know, are you going to keep tolerating this? You're, you're, you know, these, these people are just killing themselves, you know, in staggering rates uh, that are higher uh, than before the uh, sexual... Meanwhile, they keep ins-
0: lying about the fact that they're actually doing this to prevent suicide. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly.
1: Right. So... Right. Anyway, I've said my bit. No,
0: that's a, uh, yeah. and, and another question here, uh, Dear Father Spitzer, a friend of mine complained to me that rarely do the church leaders criticize Catholic politicians who support abortion, gay marriage, or other policies against church teaching. I told them that many times a bishop will privately admonish and counsel those in their flock, even major politicians. Do you think this private counsel is occurring? At what point must a bishop make a public stand? I guess maybe like... Archbishop Corleone did or something like that.
1: Right? Yeah, I, I'd say, you know, there's there's two levels at uh, which you can address it. I mean, the first thing is for y- yourself to say, to be, you know, obviously intolerant of abortion. And the reason of, of intolerance is not because you don't, you want to control the life of a, of a woman who wants an abortion. It's because you're standing up for the rights of the, of the real human being mm-hmm. that's there at the moment of conception. And that human being has inalienable rights, which he cannot be deprived of. And that's written into our natural law. And of course, into our Declaration of Independence for that matter as well. So the point, though, is if we um, uh, you know, stand up for that very, very clearly and we say po- uh, politicians should not allow this to happen simply because uh, their constituencies want. You know, uh, we saw that again with slavery, and I I think slavery's always a good parallel issue. Just because a lot of property holders in the South wanted slaves uh, uh, to happen, Uh, You know, people felt, well, you know, these are my constituency. Personally, I'm against slavery, but, you know, I had to vote for it because, uh, you know, my constituency really wanted uh, these poor people uh, to be enslaved. Hey, wait a minute. What about the slaves? You know, I mean, uh, you you turn them into chattel and now you you, you say that's okay because your constituency won. Well, it's the same thing. You can't be killing little kids in utero because, uh, you, you know, your constituency, likes it, even though you're personally opposed. I think politicians need to say that clearly. Right. Now, uh, how they do that with individual politicians is a totally different matter. Of course, Archbishop Corleone is utterly heroic in, right, in, in his work, or you know, Bishop Paprocki and others have made it very clear what they think. But I, I do think you know other bishops, you know, uh, in fairness, do do the private uh, you know, uh, uh chats with these uh, politicians and uh, not that it's going to change them in, in the long run, because if they, if they don't have a conviction, right. a moral interior conviction about the rights of that, uh, um, preborn human being, right. uh, they're going to be the same as the slave owners. If they don't have the internal moral conviction that nobody deserves to be a slave, then they're not, they're not going to change. Right, and, and of course, the church did admonish them. Right. And by the way, uh, a lot of other people admonished them, and the pope admonished them. I, I mean, I, I, I know that. Uh, uh, well, I got a lot of stories about that, but I right, absolutely. Uh, a short on time.
0: We'll, we'll get to another question, <laughs> dear Father Spitzer, I'm under hospice care, and I make and making arrangements for my burial. I've decided to be cremated and prefer to have my remain, my cremated remains not scattered, but buried at sea in, in an urn or other sealed container. My local pastor says that my remains must be interred in a cemetery. According to what I've read, the church not only supports the whole body burial, but also envisions that sea burial cremated remains is allowed. Uh, Could you add some clarification to what is currently acceptable by the church? Thanks for your continuing. No,
1: I think he's got the right view. Uh, Yeah, it is allowed still. And of course, we know that many of the naval uh, burials uh, Mm -hmm. uh, that take place at sea are done that way. And Uh, They're not condemned by the church. Uh, And, of course, if it's interred, you know, if it's it's contained, right? uh, right. Contained, yeah. Right. You can't do the Uh, scattering. Scattering, yeah.
0: Right. Here's another question, kind of a different take. If, dear Father Spitzer, if souls in purgatory are dependent on our prayers, what happens to the souls who have no one to pray for them? Many people no longer place an importance on praying for souls in purgatory. I'm terrified I'll
1: be stuck there until the end of time. This is Anne. Well, Anne, there are just a whole lot of people like me uh, who every day pray for all the souls Absolutely. in purgatory. Right. I mean, I would say probably two-thirds of the Catholics I know mm. do that. And in my morning offering, I'm right there and all the souls in purgatory. Right. So you don't have any worries, Ann, uh, because there are people like me and a whole lot of other people that are praying for you every single solitary day and offering up all their prayers, their works, their joys and sufferings for uh, the uh, the well-being of your soul. Okay.
0: Biblical question here, Dear Father Spitzer. we believe in one God who is three equal persons. However, I am confused by our Lord's words in John 14. If you truly love me, you would rejoice to have me go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Is this not Jesus saying the three persons are
1: not equal? Uh, no, actually that uh, term greater, yeah. Uh, this is, uh, always comes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, The idea of greater can also mean prioritized. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, greater in the sense of he's first in the priority of love. And that's the way the church has always interpreted it. That, it, you know, there are three uh, equal uh, persons that share in the divine nature identity. Remember, like a person is like a self-consciousness, right? And so there are three self-consciousnesses sharing in the one infinite uh, divine power, one infinite divine nature. And so that's why we say there's one God or Godhead, one divine nature, but there are three persons, three self-consciousnesses making use of them. Now, if you make use of the divine nature unconditionally, sequel uh, right across the board. Well, well, what's different then? Mm -hmm. It's the father who is the beginning of the procession, but it's not a temporal beginning. So this is, you know, you have to kind of get the church's notion of of non-temporal beginnings. He is just, as it were, the first in relation, Mm. but he's not ontologically superior uh, in nature. Uh, because they're all sharing the same one uh, divine nature. So he's not going to be superior in nature. It's the same nature mm-hmm. uh, that they're they're sharing. So um, what is it? So we say that, okay, the father first loves the son. Mm-hmm. Again, don't temporalize it. Just look at it as, you know, how love works, right? So the father loves the son. The son receives the love of the father and then returns it to the father. Mm-hmm. So the father is a giver receiver, but the son is a receiver giver. And then love always goes outside of itself and all unions must go outside of themselves, right? If the husband and the wife uh, just sit there in their uh, union and they go, uh, well, let's just stare into each other's eyes ad infinitum, uh, they're gonna go right into the uh, narcissist's pool and drown. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the point, of course, is it has to move outside of itself. And as it moves, uh, that love moves outside of itself, mm-hmm. it goes, you know, husband and wife goes to a child. In the case of the divine, uh, persons. It goes to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the beloved who receives the love from the union of the Father and the Son. And then the fourth procession is the Holy Spirit gives back uh, his love to the union of the Father and the Son, much like a child gives back you know, okay. his love to the union of the mom and dad. So the idea is there's four processions there, and the father is the beginning point of uh, that uh, procession of love. And, um, uh, you know, you, you have to, as it were, have a starting point, okay. And the father is the lover, then we say. Okay. The son calls himself the beloved one. Ha-agapetas, doad in, uh, you know, ha-agapetas in Greek. And then the Holy Spirit is the beloved of the Father and the Son. Okay. Again, a
0: lot of people have been saved over the years, haven't really necessarily understood that. <laughs> didn't stop them from making their way to heaven. Have had, so some, making their way to heaven. Which is the most <laughs> important thing. Dear Father Spitzer, and, and I'll say, what do you think about some of the best popes in history? And they can't be a Jesuit because he's, he's in there right now. So pick somebody prior to Pope Francis uh, in the past that you you, in a sense, uh, look up to or thought
1: Oh, St. John Paul II for me okay. is, you know, hero par excellence. Right. Now, I love uh, Pope Benedict because, uh, uh, like myself, he was very interested in the uh, academic life and very interested right. in philosophy, very interested in theology, uh, you know, loved his uh, biblical right. uh, degrees, and he was smart beyond belief. Uh, you know, I mean, he leaves me behind in the, shit, in the dust. But the the key thing is St. Is John Paul II there is a person uh, for whatever reason I just resonate with his love of youth. I resonate with the, you know, his. He's he's almost like a Jesuit in the sense mm-hmm. of the majus, majus, majus. The even more, the even more. Mm-hmm. Just go to the frontiers, do the hardest thing. You know, you know, you know. Three questions of the majus, right? You know, <clears throat> what's the greatest universal need? Anybody else doing it? Uh, if not, do you have the capacity to do it? If so, get going. Mm-hmm. That was St. John Paul. Just loved him. Uh, loved you know his saintly way. Loved his theology of the body. <clears throat> loved the way he was so utterly pastoral. Right. At the point at which he was utterly intellectual. And you look at that wonderful book, <clears throat> "Witness to Hope" by uh, George, George Weig- Weigel.
0: Wrote, right,
1: yeah, great book because it so captures. Uh, John Paul's. <coughs> did, did you know him at all? Did you meet him at all? When uh, St. John Paul? Oh, you yeah. many, many, many times yeah. because I, I studied in Rome okay, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, every New Year's Eve, uh, St. John Paul would come to the Jesu Church oh. uh, for the Te Deum and afterwards we'd all get to meet him and of mm. course I um, was always, you know, when my mom came to town, you know, <laughs> take her over to see the Pope and we could get these very special tickets because, uh, uh, you know, of our position there, so... Uh, um, you know, I got to, to meet him on uh, several it's occasions. called
0: clericalism. That's what
1: yeah. <laughs> well, probably so, but my mom sure liked it. <laughs> yeah,
0: right, right, okay. <laughs> and what about what about Pope Benedict? Oh, I love Pope Benedict, too. Because, I mean, as far as meeting him or, or, or having... Oh, uh,
1: you know, I did meet him once uh, when I wrote my first book um, on uh, natural theology and science, um, you know, A New Proof to the Existence of God. Mm-hmm contributions to contemporary physics and philosophy. I went there and uh, with uh, some of my good friends, uh, by the way, who are here at the Napa Institute, oh, including okay. Tim Bush, uh, was one of them. And uh, I presented the book uh, to uh, Pope Benedict at that time. And, uh, uh, you know, he's a fellow academic, so I thought he might actually like it. So uh, what was it about his way of approaching things that so impressed you? Well, uh, first of all, uh, you know I just was using a distinction the other day of you know where he makes this distinction between the core of a revelation that's an inherent versus the external husk or the external oh, form okay. right. of the expression of a revelation which is not um, in inerrant and when I when you take those two, you know, things. It explains like about 20 problems in the Bible. He does it so lucidly, so simply, develops a whole ecclesiology around it. And I just look at that and I just go, wow, this isn't fantastic. If you've ever read that wonderful encyclical Caritas and Veritate, mm-hmm. I mean, What doesn't he have in that encyclical? I mean, he's got a systematic development of the human person. He's got an entire philosophy uh, and theology of love. He's got the entire, you know, Christocentric, you know, personal relationship with Christ. And then he takes up about 16 global issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this guy's not just smart. He's using all that intelligence that he has to synthesize it. Uh, in in a way that it's, you know, caritas, it's, it's love, it's in veritate, it's got the heart, it's got the mind, and it's got that call to action. Mm-hmm. I just love the guy. I mean, I, I just uh, I do. I, I think the two of them together is just uh, uh, absolutely wonderful.
0: Right, okay. Another question. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, you often stress the importance of confession. In dealing with mortal sin, what if you commit a mortal sin, and intend to go to confession as soon as possible, but die before then? Would I be doomed to
1: hell? Nope. <laughs> no, you would not. No, actually, okay. the intention to, uh, to I didn't get... even
0: get a chance to read the whole question.
1: Oh, sorry. <laughs>
0: uh, oh, yeah, go, uh, sorry. Better, better, better read it. Though. That's all right. <laughs> I knew you'd been trying to get rid of me. It's all right. <laughs> No, you answered it 100 percent right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next up, dear Father Spritzer, uh, this is one you know it's out there. Unfortunately, somebody can. Can there be an authentic, valid Holy Mass and other valid sacraments outside of communion with the Pope? Suzanne.
1: Well, no, not uh, not a valid Holy Mass. No, no, you can't. Uh, uh, communion with the Pope is really, really important. Uh, I know you're going to bring up the problem of the, uh, the Orthodox. Mm. Now, you can have what I would call a Holy Mass, mm. but we are not going to call it uh, per se a valid Mass uh, unless you've got some proof that... Uh, Uh, This uh, particular person's uh, ordination goes back uh, to um, uh, St. Peter, that it's in that lineage, of uh, Petrine um, uh, lineage. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, uh, you know, let's face facts. Um, uh, When you're uh, in line with the Pope, you have the proper intention uh, toward the Holy Eucharist and uh, not just the Holy Eucharist, but everything that goes along with it in terms of church. Now, um, uh, for example, you... You can say, do the Orthodox have a pretty similar theology of the Eucharist to the Catholics? Yes, they do. Mm. Yes, they do. But it's not within the, the uh, w- within the Church um, that has defended a whole lot of other doctrines that are concerned. Uh, with the Holy Eucharist. I mean, it's almost like uh, they have a, a Eucharistic theology that is innocent almost. And uh, we have one that has been tested as source and summit over the course of time within the Catholic Church. It's constantly uh, trying to interpret its doctrines in terms of religion. So you know, the idea of valid and listed to, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, I would not go to an Orthodox Mass. If you can go to a Uniate Mass, uh, that's fine. Um, but uh, if you have absolutely no choice, I mean there's absolutely no mass, uh, I'd have to ask one of my canon lawyer friends you right. know uh, what would be the solution to that but, uh, uh, right I'm sure now. we'll
0: get to talk about this again because I'm sure we'll get some letters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> People informing us uh, how uninformed we might that be this uh, particular
1: And I, I take the blame right <laughs> away. I'm not going to blame a law teacher. There you know, go. A <laughs>
0: <laughs> Another question okay. Dear Father Spitzer, it's my understanding that if a person obtains a divorce but does not remarry, they can still receive Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. If they remarry without an annulment, they cannot. Does not just obtaining a divorce go against Christ's teaching on marriage? whether they remarry or not. And
1: well, obtaining a divorce can be for several reasons, and the answer to that is no. It, it doesn't go against Christ's intent. If the husband is beating up a person or something of that nature, or uh, that person, uh, as they say, had no intention um, you know, of, uh, of carrying out a marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You know, there's all kinds of reasons for pursuing a divorce. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in some cases where a divorce is unnecessary, like, ah, you bore me and, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) your cooking uh, is not that good, so I'm divorcing you. Of course that's contrary to Christ's intention. Uh, to divorce a person for that reason. Um, and in fact, you know, Christ, Jesus was actually involved in, in that kind of a controversy, mm-hmm. right? The Hillel and the Shammai. I mean, uh, honestly, the Hillel at that time allowed divorce uh, of a wife because she's a bad cook, uh, truly. Mm-hmm. And so you, you look at things like that and you go, oh, that's not right. And, uh, and of course, it's an injustice to the wife. And the minute it's an injustice to the wife, it's definitely contrary to Christ's uh, teaching. Um, who specifies what the rights of the wife are. So uh, you can't leave her, uh, you know, divorced and widowed for no good reason. Now, there could be good reasons uh, for that where you just uh, decide not to do it. So the church is pretty careful and circumspect, uh, you know, about um, uh, doing these things. But on the other hand, the main test is if you get remarried, that's where the uh, you'd without have have an, an annulment, an, you'd have to have an annulment. You'd have to have an annulment.
0: That's right. correct. Right. Okay. So it, let me ask you about that. One of the stories we had, I think, a couple of weeks ago on the show was this new fad out there, and maybe it's just a small fad about having these divorce parties going on when you know it's time for us, uh, you know, no longer we love kind of things. So
1: nonsensically right. sick. Right. I mean, that's all you can say about it. It's so contrary to covenant love in the Christian tradition, so well articulated, by the way, by St. John Paul II. I mean, it's so utterly, you know, conflictual. You know, the damage that's done to these kids. <laughs> I just can't imagine. You're going to celebrate what you're, you're going to pound that those kids into the dust and let's have a big party to celebrate what we're gonna do to our kids. And let's take all the damaged relationship, the hurt feelings that we're gonna take it for the rest of our life. Let's have a a celebration of that. And let's have a celebration of going against the covenant that we've uh, and let's Are you kidding me? It's just absolutely nuts. And what culture does that except one that is almost entirely hedonistic right good grief now
0: one of the things i noticed one of the uh you
1: know uh, strong themes also
0: uh, at the conference here and certainly things ew tenant itself made some announcements about and some focus is not only on on reach is reaching younger people especially Mm -hmm. uh you know using the internet and social media etc especially but Mm -hmm. but really uh curating and creating things specifically targeted at that. Mm -hmm. And you wonder why that's such a focus right now, why there's such a problem. But then I was thinking when you mentioned uh string uh, theory i was thinking of string painting theory <laughs> which we had back in high school as i recall instead of religion class who <laughs> remember that along with the big bang collage theory <laughs> had, too because we had to fill up our time since there wasn't really much else to mm. talk to. why is, is it just such poor catechesis and it, and is it because the people of my generation or our generation didn't get enough and they didn't know to pass it along Were they still thinking this was being passed along inside the church or inside the Catholic schools or what?
1: Well, I think, uh, like I said, there, there are three uh, areas there that are also um, pretty evident that the young people have had to suffer with. Um, uh, the first thing is I, I do think they really have that faith science conflict mm-hmm. and that is leading a lot of them to be skeptical of everything the church teaches. Totally unnecessary, unnecessarily, because of course there's no conflict between the church and science. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, they uh, think that there is, and that's causing a problem. Mm-hmm. And and the second thing is, I've said social media and what Arthur Brooks uh, described today as uh, you know that me uh, level rather than the I level of looking out to the world. So I've always got the mirror on me. You know, I'm looking at the world. Uh, you know, as uh, I, as the world is looking at mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. So the idea of, you know, the self-reflective uh, nature of the uh, the social media, Instagram, et cetera, uh, these things definitely uh, are exacerbating uh, the problems with young people, causing not only an apathy, but causing such neuralgia, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking major um, uh, depression, anxiety, suicides, et cetera. And, and that... T- it's going to be so utterly distracting that the kids can't figure out that the way out of their suicidal feelings, depression, anxiety, yeah. is to go to God and get the hope, the religion that they, 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 they're yearning for. Interiorly, so that's the second thing they, they have to. We didn't have to deal right. uh, with that stuff either. The third thing is we got a lot of fatherless families out right. there, okay. and we know that religion comes through the father, right. at you know most of the time.
0: Right, that's um, the greatest indicator of uh, yeah. the children continuing to practice. Right,
1: that's right, and and of course if the father and the mother combine, right. that's even better. Right. But the father is the linchpin factor, and if the father bails. Uh, almost assuredly, the, the, the boy will bail, and a uh, really good chance a girl will bail, too. Right. Uh, but uh, but the boy will almost invariably bail. And not only that, he'll have very little respect for morals and the law right. uh, when the father bails, and that's where you get all the kinds of uh, things where you see... It just in the, in the last minute, I just wanted to ask you, in a sense of, is it also tough
0: many times for parents or others? Because, you know, it seems like they try and figure out, it's like, is, is what we believe changing? Uh, I say this, but, uh, this. but uh, Bishop says this, or this priest says this, or sister told somebody that, and, and and people feel like, well, maybe I'm old, I'm too old-fashioned.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the the frankly, there is a huge amount of confusion in the church today, and there's too many. Uh, diverse aspects of interpretation of Christ's teachings. We have to stick with the official church teaching. Um, you know, that uh, I know some bishops uh, play fast and loose with the text, as, the, as they say, uh, of, of the scriptures, but it's not really the bishops. The bishops are pretty unified and trying. There are some bishops that do play a little fast and loose with the text. But the, the, the key thing is when that happens, boy, that doubles up. And now we look at the German bishops. That, what kind of an example are they giving? I mean, there's so much heterodoxy there. It baffles me. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why do you want to even be in the Catholic Church? Move on. Go to another church that situates you uh, more where your theologies come. No longer the theology of Christ, or ne- no longer uh, the uh, the theology of Christ through the ages as interpreted by the church. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. On that point hopefully more
0: optimistic as we go forward and when we join each other again and we thank of course you father spitzer as always for this wonderful program and the napa institute for hosting us which you're also uh, in charge of as part of the team we thank those who came to visit us while we did the program here live from uh, napa and the napa institute and this is father spitzer's universe we'll be with you again we'll see you next time in our regular quarters thanks